Good morning. If you're brand new here, my name's Tom. I'm the pastor here, and uh, glad to see you. If we haven't met, I hope we get an opportunity to meet sometime uh, while you're here this morning. I think we need to take, uh, take a minute and pray. Take a minute and pray in the face of the terrible, terrible thing that happened in Orlando when 49 people were killed last Saturday night, early Sunday morning. I was not aware of that situation before coming here on Sunday morning, and just so stunning, isn't it? Such a, such a commentary on what's, what's going on in these days, and our hearts are broken, aren't they, for 49 people who were just mercilessly killed. You know, I, I know it can be kind of confusing in your heart in some way, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we understand certain things to be true from the Bible that are, that are absolutes to us. They're, they're the guiding realities of, of our lives as Christians. And, but I think that we have to understand that the moment that we're in as in, as a nation and as believers, that when something like that happens in Orlando, that that completely transcends anything that we would hold to be as an absolute standard. You know what I mean? Because these are 49 people who died. 49 souls And so I, I think it's very important for us to mourn their passing. And, and in another way, I think to mourn something that we've lost as a nation. So Father, we do bow before you now in, in, face of a, in the face of a terrible, terrible thing that happened in our country, and we mourn the passing of these, these people, these men and women who were killed by a terrorist. And so we pray, Lord, for their families today. We pray for the community of Orlando. We pray for the church, and we, we pray for our nation, Lord, because it just seems like we're slipping down this slope so quickly. And so we pray for our nation. We pray that the, that the truth of God would prevail in our nation again, Lord. We mourn what we've lost. come to you this morning, Lord, as men and women and young people who believe in you, who want to believe in you, who, who, who want to make authentic, eternal connection with you through the power of your Holy Spirit and your Word. And so we pray that you'd come, Lord, and you would uh, speak to us here 
thousand miles away from where that happened, but somehow attached to it. And we pray that you would, you would bless our hearts with your fire, with your power, with your voice, Lord, so that we can speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world all around us, so that we can rise up and be men and women who speak the truth of God and speak it in love as you have called us to speak it, God. So we invite your Holy Spirit to come and enliven us as believers for this. Now in the name of Jesus, amen. Time is on my side, or maybe was on my side. I don't know if... uh, Not sure that Mick Jagger could sing that song with the same enthusiasm as he did 50 years ago. <laughs> Can you believe it's been that long? Uh, when that song was actually uh, recorded. It was, you know, a lot of you know that song. He's singing about a girlfriend who left him, and he knows he's right, and she'll figure out what's good for her, and she'll come running back, running back, running back to me, e, e, right? <laughs> That is the nature of that song because Mick Jagger in that song knows that he's right and that if he just sits in the right place, the time will prove him right. Am I right? Now rewind 2,600 years to ancient Babylon and you have the book of Daniel and the same thing is happening. In our Through the Bible series here, we're in the book of Daniel, 24th stop in the Through the Bible. We're going to do it today. And then we're going to take a break from this series. I'm pretty sure I'll come back, Lord willing, and he doesn't return before I get back to it. Uh, but I think we're going to take a break and work on some of those summer shorts. There were some good suggestions I felt that were sent my way, and I'm happy to study and pray through those things. Uh, but today we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Father, we ask you to come in your power and your strength, your majesty and your might. Make your word come alive to us, Lord. Nobody came here to listen to me. Nobody came to listen to Mick Jagger. We came because of you, God. We, we came because we believe in you and because we believe your word is true. We believe your Holy Spirit is real and he's here. And that you could do something miraculous. You could do something in our hearts. You could do something in our heads. You could do something in our spirits. You could do something in our bodies. You could save us from condemnation. You could release us from addiction. You could, there's just an endless, there would be no end to the list of things you could do, Lord. And so, we just pray that you'll come now and speak in the power of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Daniel, what's the book of Daniel all about? Uh, What's the context? First of all, the book of Daniel is about what was going on in ancient Babylon in the 6th century B.C. Um, You know, uh, he was one of those uh, guys who was strategically placed by God in the king's palace after they'd been conquered by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel found his way into the king's palace through a really strange series of, of events that only God could orchestrate. I mean, it even involved a vegetarian diet. And I mean, I don't even know any vegetarians that I like. I don't even, uh, ha, I don't know how 
that happened, that a vegetarian diet turned out to be good. I don't know how. Do you, do you, who, know, who can feel me now? That, that there is no way in heaven that God would have ever given us these pointed teeth right here if he only expected us to eat vegetables. Can I get a witness? There you go, Tom Anderson. I just want to let you know that. So anyway, through a series of events, dreams, interpreting, diet, all kinds of things, he gains the attention of, he gains the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar. He gets strategically placed into the, into the palace. And so Daniel's in a prime position to be able to speak the word of God, the, 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 the mind of God into what's going on. It's also about God's faithful provision in the face of deadly opposition. So you've probably maybe heard of Daniel in the den of lions. Have you heard of this? Where he gets actually thrown into a den of lions because of all things he defied the government and stood up for what he believed in. That the government said, you can't do this. And he said, not only I will, but watch me. And he opened his windows, the curtains, and went and he prayed in front of the window. And it just shows that believers, the people of God, you always operate by God first. Everything else comes after that. And so he was forbidden by the government to do that. He did it anyway, and he was thrown into this den of hungry lions. How do we know they were hungry? Because they didn't eat him. It's because they ate the people who threw him in there. I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy. I'm not happy about that. But there's some sort of odd justice in that, right? I'm, I'm really not happy that somebody got eaten by lions. But it happened. And it just shows that Daniel is a book about how God is always faithful to us, even in the face of the deadly. He's still there. And, and Daniel, by way of context, it's, it's also about what's going to be happening very soon is actually already happening. That a substantial portion of the book of Daniel is devoted to this thing called eschatology, which is a, one of the big words we make up in the church just to make newcomers feel left out. Eschatology is the study of, of the end times, of last things, of the return of Christ, of, of the fulfillment of history. And Daniel, 2,600 years ago, was given visions about how this is all going to be and he saw stuff that he caused him to say, what is this? And he was told, and he said, and when is this? And, and he was told, it's not for you to even know that. It's not for your time. It's for a future time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the time is now. You've heard preachers say throughout the years, I'm sure the time is now, the time is now. You've never heard me say that. I'm saying the time is now. I am not an expert in eschatology, but I'm also not stupid. I can see what's going on in the Bible, and I can see what's going on in the world, and it couldn't be any more clear to me that we are in these times that Daniel prophesied, and we will begin to see detailed fulfillment of these things. That's what the book of Daniel's about. So that's the context, the thing you got to get stuck in your mind as you begin to read it then and begin to understand it. So, as you know, in this series, I like to look for a hot spot each week. What in the book do we want to center our attention on as a passage and invite the Lord to speak to us in? 
And uh, with that context I just told you in mind, I figured I was going to be led to like some end time treasure or something and God was going to privilege me to share something about it that would make us go, whoa, yeah. Because that's so much of the book is about that. So I wasn't getting that as I, as I prayed. I spent most of the day on Tuesday just praying, reading through the book and praying and, and say, what's the hot spot, Lord? And of all things, I was taken to Daniel chapter 3, which isn't one of those eschatology passages at all. I was taken to Daniel chapter 3, which is, which is the account of... So Daniel had three specific friends. Do you know their, their names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right. Fun names. I don't hear anybody naming their kids that these days. But that, this was... These were their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were colleagues of Daniel, and they also were strategically placed in the king's favor um, because of the hand of God. Don't ever limit where God can put you. Don't ever, ever limit where God can put you. I mean, just look at this as an example. And so Daniel chapter 3 is about these guys, and... Um, uh, what happened was that, was that uh, Nebuchadnezzar in his megalomania, he decided that what he needed to have built was a 90-foot golden statue. He was advised by his astrologers and such to do this. And it was 90 feet tall, and, and they, they, they created a certain kind of music that when the music was played, everybody needed to bow down toward the statue in honor of King Nebuchadnezzar and just announcing that you are the supreme thing. And so the, and the, 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 the punishment for not doing that was what? You're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. This is what Daniel chapter 3 is about. And so it goes on. And um, so they start playing the music and people are bowing down everywhere. Well, then it becomes pretty obvious who isn't bowing down, right? And so who, who isn't bowing down? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these guys are spotted by these, by these astrologers and magicians who hated the Jews. They hated the people of God. Now, is it just me, or does it seem like that happens a lot, that in every culture there seems to be some people who are committed to hating the Jews? I mean, I've seen that in other books of the Bible, haven't you? I mean, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but it seems... It seems like that happens, right? And it just goes to show that there is always opposition to being a part of the people of God. There will always be opposition to that. And so there were these people who hated the, the Jews, and so they pointed out to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, you know the song thing and the statue thing? Yeah, well, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're not bowing down. And it says that he was furious, and he brought them in, and he gave them a chance to bow down. He said, I'm going to give you another chance, and we're going to pick it up there in their, uh, in their response. Chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. But if he does not, we want you to know, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He had just given them an opportunity to get it right, and the whole thing flipped. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I'm sure it was hot enough to kill you already, but this was his... This was his response. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Aren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire. I see four men unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There's four in there. And the three we sent in there, they're not even, they're not even tied up anymore. Now I asked this to myself this question. If I was thrown into a fiery furnace and suddenly realized I was, I was free, what would be my first response? Get the heck out of the fiery furnace, right? But something kept them in there. Something kept them in the fire. Something said, I would rather be in this fire than out of this fire. What could that have been? Ponder that. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out. (laughs) Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and prefects and governors and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. They trusted in him. They tr- this is him talking. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way than the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the whole thing was flipped. Do you have hope for our nation? Do you have hope for our nation that this thing could flip? That it is not outside the realm of the sovereignty of God to still flip this thing. So that's what happened. And that's our hot spot. Any questions? (laughs) 
you know, if you look at this, I think there are some things that emerge. These guys are in the face of opposition. And I think the first thing that emerges is, beloved Christians, you do not need to defend yourself. You do not need to be one of those people walking around defending yourself and your positions on this or that. Just have it and live on it, okay? Just find your space in God and stand on it and live on it. Enjoy the space. As opportunity comes in for explanation, absolutely explain it. But you don't have to defend yourself. Look, so, so these guys are challenged in this way. And Shadrach, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. I mean, can you imagine? What do you mean you don't need? I, I, I'm going to throw you in the fire. Do you guys know what fire is? What do you mean you don't need to defend yourself? Jesus didn't defend himself. I remember as a young adult, new believer, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm going like, get to that part where he's on trial, Jesus is on trial and stuff. And, you know, I, I didn't know how it came out yet. I'm, I was there. And I'm like reading it like, holy smokes. And I'm like, speak up, Jesus. Kill him. We went to a church, you know, a little country church at the time. I was trying to figure out what all this stuff meant, and they used to sing a song. We could, he could have called 10,000 angels. Anybody know that song? And I'm like, so why didn't he for crying out loud? Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he defend himself? Because he knew it was right. knew he had to do the right thing and that if you keep doing the right thing time will prove you right if you if you keep doing the right thing time will prove you right because as it turns out time is on your side If you look at these guys in the Bible in both halves, they're not defensive. They're offensive. This is what creates their problem, is they're offensive. Church, we're on offense, not defense. We're not playing defense. We're on offense. The God of angel armies is by our side. We, we're playing offense. We're not here to try to somehow prop up what we believe whether it be things of theology or things of social application, we're not here to prop up things we believe. We're here to believe them, to stand on them, and to speak them in love. Assuming a defensive posture is an admission of weakness, I think. Because if you know that you've done right, if you know you've done right, then rest in the strength of God. Time will prove you're right. You don't have to Facebook your big defense. Stay quiet. Let time prove you're right. But be sure you're right. (laughs) 
So I think you don't need to defend yourself comes from this passage. I think also you don't need to fear the consequences. You know, a threat. What's the worst thing that can happen to you today? You die and go to heaven, right. That's a win-win. <laughs> we win. He wins. You know, you're given your all to follow Christ, and things are coming at you. You're oppressed. You're opposed. Things are not working out in the way that you hoped they would. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? You just keep doing it. And you don't need to fear the consequences. Um, you know, here these guys are threatened by the king, and they say, you know, we're not going to defend ourselves. Verse 17, you know, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And the king will rescue us from, and, and will rescue us from your hand. In other words, God's hand is greater than yours, King Nebuchadnezzar. Talking about to the king of the Babylonian Empire. He was a big deal. But he said, God, you got nothing compared to God. There is no power on earth that begins to match the power of God. And he says, we don't, we don't fear your hand, said, O king. But check this out. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't show up and rescue us, we're not going to bow down and serve your gods. Because you stay with what you know to be true. You stay with it. And you don't fear. You have nothing to fear. When you understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that your dynamic relationship with him, your dynamic living faith in him, your responsiveness to him and the power of the Holy Spirit, that living in that dynamic quality is what assures your eternal life, then what do you have to fear? Nothing. And I know how it goes. You know, you're working hard at this thing and things are unraveling and it could be in your business life, it could be relationally, it could be so many different things, but you're just looking at that thing and you're going, man, that's going bad. And what you do is you begin to, you begin to think worst case scenario, don't you? You begin to create a picture in your mind that says, if that keeps going in that direction, we're not going to be together, I'm going to lose my job, I'm not, I'm gonna, this cancer is going to get me, whatever. And you very naturally just begin to paint a picture that is worst case scenario. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And that really gets your attention, doesn't it? And by ha at having your attention, what doesn't have your attention? You're right. And, and the Bible says that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen, or maybe it's the other way around. Look it up, Hebrews 11. And, but, but faith is about seeing the other picture, and if the enemy can keep you focused on that picture of worst-case scenario, guess what you're not doing? You're not seeing the picture of God's preferred future for you, and in not seeing it, you're not speaking it, and not speaking it, you're not walking it. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I realize I'm tiptoeing up to a prosperity theme here, and we'll stop before we get there, I promise you. But the Bible says that God has good things for you. But as long as we can fe keep fearing what's going to happen, then, that's, then we're not having faith. So what do we do? How do you get out of that cycle? Well, I think you have to have faith. I think you set your faith on what the 
preferred picture is. Not the worst case scenario. You release your faith for that because this puts you in company of the Holy Spirit who changes everything. And I think another thing to do if you want to stop being afraid of what's next, what could be next, is to redefine the word next. Redefine the word next because you're thinking, oh, if that keeps going in that direction, here's what happens next. That's not the end of the matter. What's next is what happens after that. And supposing this terrible thing happens and you succumb to it. Supposing you succumb to it. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? You die and go to heaven. That's what's always next. The devil wants you to stop at this version of next. The Lord is inviting you always to think of the last, final version of next, which is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, where Satan isn't. You can't even imagine, you can't even imagine a life for yourself that is devoid of Satan. You can't even imagine it because he's so insidious and so subtle. But that's what's next. Redefine next. And so when, the Satan, when Satan says, here's what's going to happen next, then you go, no, next is in the company of Jesus Christ forever. You redefine next. Does that make sense? Okay. But still some of you are like, so when is this uh, hard stuff going to be over? Well, that's the, that's the third thing I think we can get out of this passage is that life can be hard. Life can be hard. Yeah? You've been reading the Bible thing? All the great people in both halves of the Bible had hard lives. Have you noticed this? I don't know where these prosperity preachers are getting this stuff that if life's hard, you're doing something wrong. I mean, <laughs> if life's hard, you're Ezekiel, you're Isaiah, you're Daniel, you're Hosea, you're Jesus, if life's hard, right? This comfort food, this comfort spiritual food. I don't know where they're getting, what Bible are they reading? How do you miss so many things? How do, you, how do you miss the words of Jesus who said, these words came out of Jesus' mouth, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. But he said, what's the first part? We love the second part, right? In this world you will have trouble. Life is going to be hard. You're not doing something wrong. You're just... Here, Paul made this great promise to us. He said, I tell you that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise of God. I have never seen a magnet for that. <laughs> I have never seen a fridge magnet for that. It's, it's okay if it's hard. Because we're at war. And we need to take something away from this passage that we saw in the fire. There were not three in the fire, were there? Who was the fourth? 
said it looked, to, from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, all he could say is it looks like it's a, one of the sons of God, one of the son of the gods. That's close. <laughs> Just close. A little grammar issue there. It wasn't a son of the gods. It was the son of God who was in the fire with those guys. Why didn't they want to come out of the fire? Because I'd rather be in a fire with Jesus than living in comfort without him, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the deal. That's the hard question for Americans to ask. And I'm not sure we really can answer it well all the time. Would you rather be in trial with Jesus or would you rather be in comfort without him? Don't answer too quickly. That's a good one to think about, isn't it? Be careful how you answer it. (laughs) But these guys, you know, they just knew that if they just kept doing the right thing, time would prove them right. Some of you are in spaces in your life where it's difficult and you go, I'm doing the right thing and the right things aren't happening back, right? Or I'm doing the right thing for somebody, you're sacrificing for somebody, you're giving for somebody, and they trample on it, don't raise your hand. And you're like, this is really hard. I don't know if I can keep doing this. Why should I keep doing this? Well, Moses conducted his entire ministry of 40 years among a people who constantly murmured against him. They would say stuff. He leads them out of Egyptian slavery, and what do they say? Moses, were there not enough graves back in Egypt to bury us in there? Did you have to bring us out into this desert? That's gratitude for you. His own sister Miriam openly criticized him for marrying a woman who had darker skin than he had. Don't you just, just see Moses just want to just choke her little head till it pops? Is that stupid or what? This is the stuff he had to put. Where did Moses find his solace? How did Moses keep going in the face of all that day after day after day? I have three words for you. Tent of meeting. Moses would go to this thing called the tent of meeting, and it said there he would do what? He'd meet with the Lord. He'd meet with the Lord. He'd had a place where he could go, and he met with the Lord, and that was his solace. That was his fuel. It's the only way he kept going. Jeremiah served God for 60 years among a people who hated him, his own people he was trying to rescue, beat him, imprisoned him. Imagine you're running into a fire to save somebody, and they're standing behind the door with a shovel, and they hit you in the head. That's what happened to Jeremiah. That's the life that he lived. He earned the title what? The Weeping Prophet. Oh, that's a happy camper. (laughs) How did he keep going in face of such such opposition? How did he just keep going? Well, we saw that a couple weeks ago. We looked at Jeremiah. God called him. God called him. God met with him. And in meeting with him, he put something inside of him. So remember the part in Jeremiah where he got to the place where he said, I'm not doing this anymore. This is too hard. People aren't listening. It's not working. I'm out. He said that to God. And then he thought for a second. And he said, but there's a Hebrew word in it that goes, Dagnabbit. (laughs) 
He goes, but Dagnabbit, he goes, if I just try to keep quiet, your word is shut up within me like a fire in my bones. He said, I'm weary from holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. What kept him going was the Spirit of God, encountering God, encountering God. Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by the people he loved. He was hunted and crucified by the very people he came to save. What was his response? Did he defend himself? What did he say as the nails were being driven into his arms? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He held on to the eternal perspective. I know what you're doing, God. The Bible says that we should keep our eyes on this very same Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was for the joy. It was for something on the other side. He kept doing the right thing because he knew the time would prove him right. And it said that we should consider the same thing. We should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. We keep going. We keep going. Our dear departed friend, Pastor Arumagam Stephen, lived for 64 years. 47 of those years were spent serving God in the face of horrendous opposition in India. He was beaten by his own countrymen. His vehicles, with all the gospel literature, were burned to the ground in front of him. One of his own pastor friends was actually burned alive with his 10-year-old son for preaching the gospel. Many of Stephen's own pastors abandoned him at different times. How did he keep going? What was his solace? How did Stephen keep going? Well, his solace was about something that he built in Bangalore where he found his solace. He had found it in other ways prior to the thing that he built, but God spoke to him while he was on this property. And Pastor Stephen and I were out in our little hiding place. And if you're newer here, you look across the field when you leave, there's a little white building out there. We call it the hiding place. It's a place where you go and pray. It's all you get to do in there. It's, there's nothing much inside there. It's just a place to go pray. It's the first thing we built on the property before we built any of this. It was a cornfield. I said, let's just make a place to pray. Lots of you have been out there, and you just seek the Lord. Well, Stephen and I were out there one day, and we were praying. And we were praying, and the Spirit of God came on us in such a way that we, we fell down on the floor. We fell face down on the floor. I don't know how long we were down there, but we were crying out for this city. We were crying out for this church. We were crying out for India. We were just praying. It was just an amazing, unforgettable time in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was terrifying and amazing all at the same time. Who knows what I mean? You know, uh, kind of afraid to look up for fear I might see God's toe. You know, it was that powerful. It was that real. I don't know how much time went by. I really don't remember whether it was long or short, but we just kept doing that. And then I just remember it kind of settled down. And Pastor Stephen, he looked over at me. We're still laying on the floor. And he looked over at me. Here's what he said. He said, I must build one of these in India so that believers from everywhere can come and pray like this. Now, some of you already know, of course, his was 50 times the size of ours. Because that's, this is, that's just Pastor Stephen. He was just bigger than life. He was 50 times bigger than anyone I ever knew. And and uh, the cool thing is that literally thousands of people from every continent have come to that very prayer tower and have prayed and have called out to God. And I've been in that place many times and have prayed. But I've got to tell you what, even when I'm in that place, 
when I was in the Cathedral of Westminster Abbey in London, no matter where I've been, there's only one place I really want to get back to. And it's that little hut out there. Because you can meet God. And this is what keeps us going. This is what kept him going. And some of you are going through some very, very difficult times right now. And you go, how do I keep going? You just keep doing what you know in your heart is right and let time prove you right. It will happen. The second Bible verse that I ever memorized was Galatians 6, 9. And I know it from the King James, so I'll have to read what I want you to hear, how you hear it. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Stay with it. Stay with it. Don't fear the consequences. Don't defend yourself. Just stay with it. Stay with it. Because at the proper time, that's God's choosing at the proper time. You stay with it, you'll reap a harvest. If you don't give up. If you faint not, is how I remember it. If you don't give up. Sir Christopher Wren was a 17th century English architect. There are several versions of this story, but I've chosen to use the one that best suits my needs. <laughs> Sir Christopher Wren designed many, many buildings in uh, London and the surrounding area in England following the Great Fire of 1666. Some of you remember it. <laughs> Including the design of St. Paul's Cathedral, which is such an amazing thing to see there in London. But Sir Christopher Wren was a man with a very marked sense of opinion about how things should be built. And he was an expert. He designed 52 of the churches that now stand in the London area. He designed many other buildings following that great fire. And they came to build one of these halls. I forget the name of the hall, but there was a hall that he was commissioned to build. And having a big, being a hall, he wanted it to have a big open area so it could be a hall for people to assemble. And so he designed this thing, and he said, this is how you should build it. And he presented it to the, church, the, church, the city fathers, the town fathers. And, and they, they looked at that, and they said, no, that's not going to work. This, the, this expanse is much, much too big in order to be an open expanse without having some columns strategically placed to hold the roof up. You get it? And so he said, no, it'll work. An argument ensued for went on for quite a while. It'll work. I've designed this. I know what I'm doing. We can have an open area this big that will not fall in. They said, nope. Unless we put the columns in there, then we're not going to do it. And so he wrote in the columns and apparently carefully, carefully supervised certain aspects of the construction. So the building was built and all that sort of thing. And the building was used. The building was open. And it wasn't until after Sir Christopher Wren's death that they discovered something when they were actually finally up there doing some stuff up there. And you know what they discovered, right? The columns were two inches short of touching anything <laughs> on the top. He knew he was right. He did the right thing. And he let time prove him right. Keep doing the right thing, beloved. God watches. God sees. It's a great hymn of the church. It is well with my soul. Many of you know this story about a man whose family was lost at sea. And when they were lost at sea, he 
got to that place where they were lost. Horatio G. Spafford stood on the deck of that ship. His wife and daughters had been drowned. And he wrote this hymn, Though Peace Like a River, or Though, how does that start? Though tendeth my way, though sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it's well, it's well with my soul. And I just want to tell you that wherever you are in this whole thing I'm talking about today, it gets better, it starts to get better when you announce that in faith, it's well. It's well with your soul. Because at the end of the day, it is well with your soul. No matter how much stuff is going on around you, no matter how many things aren't happening the way you think you would want them to happen, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and the worst thing that could happen to you today is that you die and go to heaven, right? So at the end, it is well with your soul, and things begin to improve when you begin to declare that by faith. Let's stand together, church. Father, thank you for, again, for this church, for the reality of this place. We invite you to come now in the power of your Holy Spirit and hear our response, to come in the ministry of your Holy Spirit and release spiritual gifts in this place so that we can enjoy the presence of your, your kingdom here. We pray that you come and heal our sick. We pray that you come and set our prisoners free. Pray that you come and do the things that we will never stop praying for because you showed them to us in your word. And so we just pray now, Lord, that you'll hear our declaration of faith that no matter what's going on, no matter how high the waves are, that it's well with my soul. I pray you come for that one who's just tired. They're just worn out of it. They're done with the drama of it. I just pray that you'll come and just give them the blessing and the power to look beyond that. Show them what next really is. Give them the power, the strength to keep moving forward. Power of the Lord come. In the name of Jesus, amen.